mute me. Oh, all these wires are a hassle. How's everybody doing this morning? Good? Good. David and uh, Hannah, thank you guys for sharing this morning. It was awesome. Really appreciate it. Uh, and uh, inspiring, to say the least, um, to see that cycle of poverty being broken in your life and the Lord being lifted up in the process. A couple of things I want to just touch on real quick, and I'm going to move quickly through them. One, uh, there's been some questions about life groups and uh, kind of what now, where now. Uh, here's, here's our encouragement. Keep meeting. Keep meeting. The same life group. You can, you can just cycle back around to, uh, uh, to another house, and so we would just encourage you guys to keep meeting in life groups, keep building relationships, encouraging one another, praying for one another, ministering to one another in that capacity. Uh, speaking of prayer, I would like to spend just a moment, um, we got a, a prayer request, um, uh, Bill Shook, um, who's usually up here playing the bass, uh, his dad's in the hospital, still Holy Family, and um, his dad's name is Lee Shook, and so let's pray for Lee, he's having some medical issues, and they really don't want to do surgery because the scar tissue from previous surgeries is part of the problem, and they don't want to recreate that, and so, Father, we do, we hold up uh, Lee to you, uh, really the whole Shook family, Lord, just uh, pray that you just encourage them, and we pray, Father, for a healing touch for Lee, and that uh, you would bring relief and uh, ease the pain that he's going through, Lord, uh, and uh, Father, through your hand, that, the, um, that there would be a minimal amount of, of uh, surgery needed, or maybe none at all. And uh, that's our, our cry for him. That's our prayer for Lee, Lord. So indeed, we hold him up. Just pray you to surround him and the whole family with your love and with your care, that they would be encouraged this morning. And uh, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, <clears throat> a couple other quick things to uh, bring to note. And uh, I know oftentimes you guys get the, the updates from me. Uh, but this one I really didn't have anything to do with other than I've seen these kids all fall running through town and around the school, and Emmett here, before he got an injury to his leg, was a part of the high school cross-country team who yesterday, as a team, won the state championship in the two Bs. So congratulations. We're looking forward to uh, hearing that uh, and seeing Emmett out there next year, I presume, unless um, perhaps we can convince him to play football. Which on that note, uh, our team, Silas plays, Josiah plays, uh, made it into the state playoffs with a hard-fought, yeah, exactly, a hard-fought win in the snow over Brewster Friday night in overtime, and uh, it was quite an event. But we're not here to talk sports necessarily, uh, but give praise where praise is due for sure. Uh, we've been studying through the Gospel of Mark, and last week we looked at the the end of Mark chapter 2, where uh, Jesus was uh, being criticized, really. He was being asked questions, but really those questions come in a form of critique. He's being criticized for failing to have, I say failing in quotes in the eyes of the Jewish leadership there, for failing to have his disciples fast and observe the Sabbath according to their traditions. Not according to the Old Testament, but they, their criticism came out of their own 
traditions, and he really had two replies, if you recall last week. Uh, his two re- replies were this, you don't have to fast while the b- bridegroom is present. No, when the bridegroom is here, that's the time to celebrate. And he was referring, of course, to himself as the bridegroom, and that the, the groomsmen, his disciples, uh, should be in a time of celebration. That's Jewish custom. The second reply in regard to the Sabbath was that the Sabbath was created for us to take a break. It was created for us to rest, not as a platform for legalism. That was his reply. He says the Sabbath, the Sabbath was, is created so that, so that people would get a break from their normal schedule. See, we're created to just keep working, working, working. But the Sabbath was created so that people could take a break. It was not created so that uh, anybody could really have a platform for legalism and to be legalistic with it. And, of course, they were referring to their own traditions that they had tacked on top of the Old Testament We're only two chapters in so far into the Gospel of Mark, and we see this growing tension, and I'm going to refer to this from time to time and from sermon to sermon. But we see already just in in two chapters, there's this tension, this building tension between Jesus and the Jewish religious leadership. And that tension just is going to continue to grow, continue to grow. Only two chapters in. Why were they so adversarial towards the Lord? Was it just because he had hung out with the average people and the outcast of society? Was it because he taught with authority that we read about in chapter 1? Was it because he was a, a miracle worker and a healer? Was this tension continuing to grow because he, Jesus was gaining popularity there in that northern region? Was it because the people's confidence was shifting from them to him? That's really kind of what was going on in a sense. That, that the people around the region of Galilee, their confidence and their, they started following Jesus, their confidence was shifting from the religious establishment of that day to Jesus. But what is at the root really? What's the root issue of that tension is the question I have in my notes. Today we're going to discover the answer to that question. Chapter 3 of Mark picks up right where chapter 2 left off. The Jewish leadership is looking for someone to hold, something to hold over Jesus' head. And they're looking for some evidence that he is some sort of a false teacher or that he's a disobedient, and I put that in quotes. They're looking for some evidence that he's a disobedient Jew. That's what they're looking for. Some which way, how can they get something on this guy? They're looking for something in his life or ministry that they can use to discredit him. They're looking for something to stem the tide of his growing popularity, something that will put them back in the spotlight and strengthen their status. There was kind of this back and forth that was going on. That was their concern. Let's dive into it. Mark chapter 3 starts off, verse 1. And he, speaking of Jesus, and he entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand, so they watched him, Jesus, closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. The critics of Jesus really expected him to heal this man with a withered hand. 
That's what they were looking for. That was really, in a sense, that's what they were hoping for. Ironically, ironically, by that very expectation, they admitted that Jesus had the power of God to work miracles. You ever thought about that? They're expecting him. They're, they're trying to use it to trap him. But really, through their own expectation, they're really confirming he is who he says he is. They knew what Jesus could do, yet their knowledge did not draw them to Jesus. This describes many today that end up in what Henry Blackaby calls a crisis of faith. We studied that through this last uh, year ago, a little more than a year ago, in the uh, Experiencing God study. How do we respond when we're in a crisis of faith? Are we drawn to Jesus as Savior and and Lord? And are we surrendering to His will in whatever it is that we're walking through? That, that's, that's really the question that's there. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what the situation is. It doesn't matter if it's about your job. It doesn't matter if it's about your kids. It doesn't matter if it's about your health, your finances, your relationships. When we find ourselves at a crossroads, a crisis of faith, are we drawn to Jesus as Savior and Lord, surrendering to His will, or are we in what I refer to as a kind of a get-me-out-of-a-jam Jesus moment, right? Over the years, I've talked to a lot of people that come in these crises of faith, you know, and, and something has happened. Their, their world's melted down. Their family's falling apart. Their marriage, their finances, you name it. And they come and they're in that I-need-to-get-out-of-a-jam moment. And so they have a tendency to get real religious in that spot. Uh, they're really seeking answers. And it's a great place to be, really. But their motivation really kind of plays out over the course of time. Because they don't really want to surrender to Jesus. They don't really want to trust Jesus. They just want an answer for their crisis. They want to resolve to their problem. And Mark says that these religious leaders watched Jesus closely. But they watched Jesus closely not because they loved him. They really watched Jesus closely because they despised him. And they were looking for some way to trap him. It wasn't that they were drawn to him. They were actually repelled by him, but they hung out close. They knew all about Jesus, but they did not know Jesus. There was no surrender, no dependency, no acknowledgement of his authority or lordship. And verse 3 says, And he said to the man who had the withered hand, Step forward. Then he said to them, Speaking of the Pharisees there. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? But they kept silent. That's a lot of tension. Jesus knew that they were, that, 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 that they were there to trap him, but instead he trapped them. He flipped the script on them in a sense. And go, Jesus goes on the offense here and asks this question, you know, in regard to whether he was going to heal this guy or not, uh, is it better to do good or to do evil? Which is it? You tell me. Now's your chance to interact in the sermon. Now's your chance to get your name on the in lights. Is it good to do better or, or is it better to do good or evil? You tell me. You don't sound real convincing. <laughs> better to do good or evil? Good. Good, right? The, answer's, the answer is good. It's better to do good. It's a no-brainer. It, it, it goes, it's, it's a rhetorical question, really. 
but a rhetorical question that he uses to really put them on their heels. When we were vacation uh, last year, uh, <clears throat> and there was quite a few of us kind of coming and going, uh, but the kids, and it wasn't just the kids, but some of the adults, and I, I only got in on a game or two, but chess is the big thing. Like everybody plays chess when we're on vacation, am I not right? So, and it's just the, th the thing, the evening, the evening routine is to play chess, and I thought about that those evenings watching uh, Leo and Josh go at it with the chessboard or Benjamin and Abner or whoever. Jesus had immediately put these guys in checkmate. They didn't have any place to go. There was no move left for them at this point. And here's why I say that. If they would answer to do good, if, the reason why they kept silent is right here. Because if they answered to do good, if they responded to Jesus and said, well, obviously, like you, all of you guys know, it's better to do good, then here's what they're doing. They're validating Jesus' position, his power, and his popularity. If they would have answered him. But they chose to stay silent. Because they knew that that answer, which was the correct answer, was the end of them. So they said nothing. If they would have said to do evil, their other option, if they would have said, hey, it's better to do evil, then they are discrediting all of the Old Testament and all of the law by which they stand for, which clearly says don't do evil. They're violating the heart of every Old Testament command. They were entrusted as a group with those commands. So Jesus literally backs him into a corner here, verbally. Says, you tell me, is it better to do good? Better to do evil. His question to the religious leadership, Jesus is emphasizing the truth, this truth about the Sabbath. And if you don't get anything else from today, and kind of in parallel thought with David's testimony, is this, there's never a wrong day to do the right thing. There's never a wrong day to do the right thing. That's the essence and the right answer to the question that Jesus posed. Verse 5 says, And when he looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. This is one of the few places, go back to verse 5, it's one of the few places where Jesus is described as having anger. And he was angry at the hardness of their hearts. He was angry because of the position that they had taken. He was angry because of where they were. He wasn't angry. I, I don't, he, he was able to separate the sin from the person, I think. I believe. But we live in a society where, when, where there's uh, that anger or being upset is immediately equated with sinfulness. That's not true. Jesus was angry and he didn't sin. Jesus is really the perfect example of what the Apostle Paul would later address to the Ephesians, where in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, Paul says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. This example of Jesus being frustrated, being angry, with where these hard hearts is a perfect example of that verse. 
Anger in and of itself is not sinful, but how we handle our anger could be sinful. Do we get that? Do we understand that? That anger in and of itself is not sinful, but how we handle our anger could be sinful. Uh, uh, one thing that you guys, most of you, maybe a few in this room have seen, is me angry. Uh, I'm not proud of my anger, but I'll tell you, when I was younger, I had a really, really, really bad temper. And uh, like I said, not something I glowed over to my shame. I struggled with my anger up into my early 20s. We spend a lot of effort and energy in our society simply just telling people don't get mad. What we don't say is we don't say what to do with that. That's what, that's what, that's, parents, that's what you need to teach your kids, that when they're frustrated, it's not about just don't get mad, it's what do you do with your anger if you are mad, and if you're going to go down a sinful path or you're going to go down a righteous path. Hey, God gets angry. Look at Proverbs chapter 6. Gives us a great list of what angers God. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 says, The six things the Lord hates, yes, seven that are an abomination to Him. I'm saying if something's an abomination, it's something that's uh, pretty awful. Verse 17 says, A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, Circle that and write next to it in your Bible, Mark chapter 3. Feet that are swift in running to evil. And verse 19 says, a false witness who speaks lies and one who sows discord among the brethren. You want to talk about something that's going to frustrate and anger God? Those are the seven that you start with. Those are the seven things that get our Creator pretty riled up. And really a good way to summarize these seven, and the reason why I connect them back to this third chapter of the Gospel of Mark, is because these are attitudes of hard-heartedness. At the core of these things, there's attitudes of, of selfish hard-heartedness that's being displayed that the writer of Proverbs writes down. Jesus was angry because of the, this was really a perfect opportunity for his critics to change their minds about him and also change their minds about their traditions. But they refused to do so. And they rejected him instead. In this rejection, we can see that Jesus deliberately used this occasion to provoke a response. He's poking the bear a little bit without sinning. And, and I'll tell you, when I poke the bear a little bit, it's, and that, that's a euphemism, it's not a who the bear is, it's just a euphemism. When I poke the bear, when I stir it up a little bit, it's usually not, uh, it's usually kind of a sinful type of thing, or at least it can lead to stirring up discord. We've all slipped and gone down that trail. But he deliberately used this occasion to provoke a response from them. He could have healed this guy the next day. He could have waited till the Sabbath was over. He could have healed him the day before. He could have healed this guy the next week. He could have done it privately, but he chose to do this at this place and time. And the question is, so what is Jesus doing in all of this? What is he doing in chapter 3 of Mark that is at the essence of, of 
the point that he's trying to get across. Here's what he's doing. He's confronting hard hearts. He's confronting these hard hearts. And what causes hard hearts maybe is a better question that you have on your mind. I have this answer. I wrote these things down. What causes hard hearts is unmet and or unsurrendered expectations. When we have unmet or unsurrendered expectations, we have a tendency to try to slide or or to move the needle towards being hard-hearted. The Pharisees had a very specific expectations of the Messiah. And their very specific expectation of the coming Messiah in the first century was governmental freedom. That was their expectation. That's what they put above everything else as, as the, the, the perfect uh, fulfillment of the Messiah was governmental freedom. Despite all of Jesus' miracles, despite all of his fulfilled prophecies, they never surrendered their expectations. And here's what happened. In the long run, they missed the Savior. Not all of them. I'm not saying every individual. But by and large, they missed the Savior. Read the book of Romans for further explanation. They missed the Savior because of their unmet or their unsurrendered expectations. If you're here today, one thing I want to make sure that you go home with is this ringing in your ears. Don't miss the Savior because of your expectations. Don't miss the Savior today because of your expectations. I was encouraged uh, recently to keep preaching tough messages, and the guy, to quote him, said, hard messages make soft hearts, and soft messages make hard hearts. There's a lot of truth in that statement. There's a lot of truth in that statement because when it's just all, you know, uh, soft and gushy and there's no confrontation, there's no discussion, there's no how do we deal with this sin, how do we deal with that sin, how do we deal with this attitude, how do we deal with that attitude. When you don't have the harder conversations, what happens is over time, then there's just a, a takeaway of an excuse. And that, and that excuse, being ex- those attitudes being excused, eventually harden hearts. The Bible's really full of warnings about hard hearts. Four areas for the sake of time, I might abbreviate this first one. Uh, four areas where the Bible warns about hard hearts. These four areas, one is in generosity. Two is relational breakdowns. Three is pride. And four is a lack of discernment. I'm not going to abbreviate it because I think that Gen- <clears throat> Deuteronomy 15, verse 7 and on, talks really well about what David shared about his own testimony. In the law of Deuteronomy in chapter 15, it says, If there is among you a poor man of your brethren, with any of the gates of your land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother, but you shall open your hand wide to him and willingly lend him sufficient for his need, whatever his needs. Beware lest there be any wicked thought in your heart saying the seventh year of the the year of release is at hand and your eye will be evil against your poor brother and you give him nothing and he cry out to the Lord against you and it becomes sin among you 
You shall surely give to him, and your heart should not be grieved when you give to him. Because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your works, and in all to whom you put your hand. Verse 11 says, For the poor will never cease from the land. Therefore I command you, saying, You shall open your hand wide to your brother, to your poor, and to your needy in your land. And we have an example and a brother in the Lord amongst us that has been the beneficiary of that type of generosity. Because people somewhere, and this, the lady from Portland was not closed-handed closed handed towards him, nor the people around him and the church that took him in. The New Testament kind of parallel to Deuteronomy 15 is in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, where Paul tells the Corinthians to be a cheerful giver. I say, but <clears throat> this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. It's a heart attitude that God is looking at. And it's a hard attitude if it goes the wrong direction that ends up melting down into hard-heartedness. The next area is relational breakdown as a result of hard-heartedness. Matthew 19, 8 and Mark chapter 10, verse 5, which we'll get to in coming sermons, say this. Jesus said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Hard-heartedness leads to relational breakdowns. The third one is pride. Pride and hard-heartedness go hand in hand. Job says in Job chapter 9, verse 4, God is wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has hardened himself against him and prospered. And Proverbs twenty-eight fourteen says, Happy is the man who is always reverent, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. He who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Both issues of pride. And the fourth area is a lack of discernment. You can note, or it's on the screen, but Matthew 13, 14 through 15, John 12, 40, and Acts 28, 25 through 27 all quote the same passage out of the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah's prophecy was really about hard-heartedness. Isaiah 6, 9 through 10 says... And he, said to, and he said, go tell the, this to the people. So it's God speaking to Isaiah. Go tell this to the people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. Which is exactly... But Mark 3, it's exactly what happened, exactly what Jesus did in Mark 3. Back to Mark 3, 5. Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored, restored as whole as the other. See, Isaiah's talking about healing. Jesus basically does the exact very thing for this fellow. Only Jesus could on one hand be grieved by hard hearts and on the other hand heal a withered hand. Only Jesus confronts hard hearts with good versus evil. 
And Jesus commanded this man with the withered hand to do something impossible, to move his paralyzed hand. But as the man put forth some effort there, God did the rest. And God never commands us without enabling us. So when Jesus speaks and says, put your hand out, things start to move. But the creator of the universe (laughs) has that type of authority. It must have been an amazing scene. You would think that having a front row seat where Jesus defies the laws of physics and defies the laws of nature and defies all known medical wisdom, both then, before then, and now, it was a miracle. You would think that something this miraculous would soften the hearts of the Pharisees. Wouldn't you? Like that, that would be, if, if you had never read this before, wouldn't you come to the conclusion right then and there, wow, if Jesus did this, I have to turn my attention to him. If Jesus can do this thing, he's got, he's got me wrapped up. You would think that they would have rethought their disdain for Jesus. You would think that seeing the impossible happen would change their tune. No, when it came to Jesus, even the miraculous would not touch their unmet and their unsurrendered expectations. See, that's the, that's the problem where when we elevate our, our uh, uh, <clears throat> unmet or unsurrendered expectations above God's plan, that's obviously they're under, unsurrendered because we're elevating them above what God's plan is for our lives. That's where we stay, and that's where these guys stayed in their hard-heartedness. No, they actually went further, actually. Verse 6 says, Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. In response to the miracle, the two parties and really former enemies, the Pharisees and the Herodians were, were, were kind of really, they were uh, opposed to one another because the Herodians, just, they were just sold out for Herod. And so then the Pharisees, who were devoutly Jew and, and stayed uh, uh, apart, if you will, politically, other than when it was expedient for them, these two parties actually decided to get together and say, hey, we, have a, we have now have a common enemy that we need to fight. But initially, in, they were enemies to one another. They come together to destroy Jesus, the word said. How can we keep from becoming hard-hearted like this? How can we avoid the traps and these critical attitudes that the Pharisees had? The book of Hebrews really is what gives us a great clue and some straightforward answers. And uh, I liked, I, I heard this summary recently about the book of Hebrews. It's summed up in one sentence. Jesus is better. The whole book of Hebrews, this guy, I was listening to him on the radio, and he said, the whole book of Hebrews can simply be summed up, whatever it is or whoever it is, Jesus is better. I kind of love that tight definition. But as we wind this thing down, I want to pick up some clues out of Hebrews chapter 3. 
So I think there's some real dynamic things here that talk about uh, hard-heartedness. Hebrews chapter 3 starts off and says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him. Who was faithful to him who appointed him. One of the first keys on avoiding or dealing with hard-heartedness really is being faithful. Now, you could make a case to say, weren't these Pharisees that were hard-hearted? Weren't they faithful? Yeah, they were faithful. But they were faithful really to their own traditions, their own thoughts, their own ways, their own wishes. Jesus was faithful to the Father, and Jesus calls us to be faithful as well. Who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses inasmuch as he built the house <clears throat> than the as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who builds all things is God. One of the ways of dealing with hard heartedness is a dependency to let God build your life. Let God build your life. Wherever you are in, in your walk with Christ, maybe you're a brand new believer, maybe you're here and not even a believer at all, maybe you've been a believer for 40, 50 years or more, wherever you are in your journey, one of the keys and one of the, 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 the dynamic things to deal with hard-heartedness is constantly a dependency to let God build your life. Let God build your house. Let God build your marriage. Let God build your family. Let God do the work in, in as much as He is in control. He has control and He has authority to make the decisions for you. Where do those decisions come from? Those decisions are laid out clearly in the Word of God. He who builds all things is God. Verse 5, And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant. For the testimony of those things <clears throat> which would be spoken afterward, but Christ as a son over his house, whose house we are, and here's the next key, if we hold fast to the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope, firm until the end. There's a lot to be said for perseverance. There's a lot to be said for, for, for perseverance. As I was preaching through First uh, and Second Timothy, and, and really First and Second Timothy and the book of Titus, uh, the three pastoral epistles deal a lot with the encouragement of the Apostle Paul telling his protégés, stay in there, persevere, endure, keep going, keep going, keep going. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way, if we hold fast, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm until the end, there's a lot to be said in dealing with hard-heartedness for holding fast to the confidence and the hope that we have in Christ as our Lord and Savior. There's a lot of people, that's a come and go thing. Uh, for me, in my teenage years, it was a come and go thing, right? I, I was really well uh, versed in looking one way on Sunday and looking a different way Monday through Saturday. I wasn't holding fast 
to the confidence and the hope that I had in Christ. But we're called to. And holding fast to that confidence, holding fast with rejoicing in the hope of Jesus as our Savior is one of the things that breaks down and deals with and confronts hard-heartedness. Therefore, verse 7, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. There's your challenge and my challenge straightforwardly. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. In the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me and tried me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said they will always go astray in their heart and they, <clears throat> and they have not known my way. So I swore in my wrath that they shall not enter my rest. All because, all of that was because and Israel wandered around in the desert 40 years, the word says. They wandered around all because their hearts were not tender to what God had said to do. Their hearts were not tender and moved towards God. They were stiff-necked and they were hard-hearted. They never got a chance. That generation never got a chance. Uh, minus Joshua, uh, Joshua, Joshua. It's kind of on my mind. Minus Joshua and Caleb were the only two out of that whole generation of Hebrews that got to see the promised land. Verse 12 says, and here's a whole power pack punch, verses 12 through 14. Verse 12 says, Beware, brethren, lest there be any, in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. There's a sense in which unbelief when we stray away from following God and, and we slide into, and this can happen in big ways, but it can happen in, we can go into unbelief uh, about what God says just about one area of our life. But that unbelief in one area eventually, like cancer, is going to spread to all of our lives. But we can, we can not believe what God says about our finances. We cannot believe what God says about our marriages, or what God says about our families, or what God says about really any number of things in our lives. But we have to be careful that we don't slide into this area that the Hebrew writer says, an evil heart of unbelief departing from the living God. And verse 13 says, but exhort one another daily while it's called today. You know, encouraging one another on a regular basis. It's, does it probably does more good than we can measure when it comes to dealing with issues of hard-heartedness. And there, there's been times I know, like I've had somebody text me or call me or, or you name it, come up to me and, and say something and they didn't have a clue what was going on in my life, but it was just a piece of encouragement I needed. I had this, this, that, this last week in a phone call. And many of you have that same, the, that same opportunity, the, have those same testimonies where Somebody talked to you. They didn't have a clue what was, you were struggling with. They didn't have a clue what you were going through. Yet you know, and you're sitting there listening or having a conversation, and you're smiling, and they're like, what, what, what? You know, all the what questions. So what, what's the big deal? You know, and you know that somehow God answered uh, something, some need that you had or gave you some piece of encouragement that you needed have to exert, <clears throat> exhort one another daily while it's called today. And the warning there is, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. 
It's a fitting description of sin. It, 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 it deceives us. It deceives us into chasing after in an ungodly way those unmet expectations, those unmet desires, unsurrendered expectations. And it's deceitful. We don't know that we're fallen. But we end up being hardened in the process. Verse 14 says, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast and to the end. A similar statement that he says up in verse 6. We've become partakers of Christ if we hold to the beginning of our confidence. Again, something said for endurance. Something said for going the distance in our faith. The last verse in this passage, and if the worship team wants to come on up, we'll gear up to close down. But the last passage, last verse that I'm going to cover there in verse 15 in Hebrews 3 says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. It's kind of a repeat from above. Are we hearing God's voice? These Pharisees walked amongst Jesus. These Pharisees, they were there. They saw the miracles. They had the conversations. They got a first-hand look, yet it didn't affect their hearts. They had every opportunity, and I'm here to say, you have every opportunity, and I have every opportunity to see what God is doing right around us. Are we listening to His voice? Or are we allowing our hearts to slide into uh, an avenue that would harden them against the things of God and against God's people? Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Let's worship the Lord, shall we? Will you rise?